Welcome to the Terry Podcast, Tales from Near and Far, read to you by Pratham Data. A Child's History of England by Charles Dickens, read to you by Pratham Data. Chapter 12 England under Henry II, Part the Second, Section 2. So here's a quick synopsis of what's happened thus far. Henry I, whose daughter Matilda, fled to France, ended up marrying a count, a Norman count, in Anjou, bore a child who was Henry II, therefore the son to Queen Matilda, or once Queen Matilda, and the Duke of Anjou, now comes back to England to claim his throne. He, of course, has an interesting reign with Thomas A. Beckett, his best friend, standing up against him and therefore being tragically and mercilessly murdered. Then, of course, he has a slew of family problems that accompany, especially from his wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine and his eight children. None seems to like the other and everybody seems to be constantly plotting to get the kingdom. Although Henry II truly contributed to the creation of the common English laws and of course conquering Ireland and making peace that would be the Norman conquest of the Irish as the first Plantagenet king, he lived a very interesting life, sort of um, interspersed by squabbles and issues among people that he should have relied on the most. His friend, Thomas A. Beckett, his children, his wife, just about all of them turned against him and made a bit of a miserable existence. Well. As Shakespeare says, uneasy lies the head that wears a crown. And as the French would say, c'est la vie de le roi. That is the life of the kings. But nonetheless, the story goes on. Henry II had four sons. Henry, now aged 18, his secret crowning of whom had given such offence to Thomas A. Beckett, Richard, aged 16, Geoffrey, 15, and John, his favourite, a young boy whom the courtiers named Lackland because he had no inheritance, but to whom the king meant to give the lordship of Ireland. All these misguided boys, in their turn, were unnatural sons to him, and unnatural brothers to each other. Prince Henry, stimulated by the French king and by his bad mother, Queen Eleanor, began the undutiful history. First, he demanded that his young wife Margaret, the French king's daughter, should be crowned as well as he. His father, the king, consented and it was done. It was no sooner done than he demanded to have a part of his father's dominions during his father's life. This being refused, 
He made off from his father in the night with his bad heart full of bitterness and took refuge at the French king's court. Within a day or two, his brothers Richard and Geoffrey followed. Their mother tried to join them, escaping in man's clothes, but she was seized by King Henry's men and immured in prison where she lay deservedly for 16 years. Every day, however, some grasping English nobleman, to whom the king's protection of his people from their avarice and oppression had given offence, deserted him and joined the princes. Every day he heard some fresh intelligence of the princes levying armies against him, of Prince Henry's wearing a crown before his own ambassadors at the French court and being called the junior king of England of all the princes swearing never to make peace with him, their father, without the consent and approval of the barons of France. But with his fortitude and energy unshaken, King Henry met the shock of these disasters with a resolved and cheerful face. He called upon all royal fathers who had sons to help him, for his cause was theirs. He hired out of his riches, 20,000 men to fight the false French king who stirred his own blood against him and he carried on the war with such vigour that Louis soon proposed a conference to treat for peace. The conference was held beneath an old widespreading green elm tree upon a plain in France. It led to nothing. The war recommenced. Prince Richard began his fighting career by leading an army against his father, but his father beat him and his army back, and thousands of his men would have rued the day in which they fought in such a wicked cause had not the king received news of an invasion of England by the Scots, and promptly came home through a great storm to repress it. And whether he really began to fear that he suffered these troubles because a Beckett had been murdered, or whether he wished to rise in the favour of the Pope, who had now declared a Beckett to be a saint, or in the favour of his own people, of whom many believed that even a Beckett senseless tomb could work miracles, I don't know. But the king no sooner landed in England that he went straight to Canterbury, and when he came within sight of the distant cathedral, he dismounted from his horse, took off his shoes, and walked with bare and bleeding feet to a Beckett's grave. There he lay down on the ground, lamenting in the presence of many people, and by and by he went into the chapter house and, removing his clothes from his back and shoulders, submitted himself to be beaten with knotted cords. Not beaten very hard, I dare say, though, by eighty priests, one after another. It chanced that on the very day when the king made this curious exhibition of himself, a complete victory was obtained over the Scots, which very much delighted the priest, who said that it was won because of this great example of repentance. For the priests in general had found out, since a Beckett's death, that they admired him of all things, though they had hated him very cordially when he was alive. The Earl of Flanders, who at the head of the base conspiracy of the king's 
undutiful sons and their foreign friends took the opportunity of the king being thus employed at home to lay siege to Rouen, the capital of Normandy. But the king, who was extraordinarily quick and active in all his movements, was at Rouen too, before it was supposed possible that he could have left England, and there he so defeated the said Earl of Flanders that the conspirators proposed peace and his bad sons Henry and Geoffrey submitted. Richard resisted for six weeks, but being beaten out of castle after castle, he at last submitted to, and his father forgave him. To forgive these unworthy princes was only to afford them breathing time for new faithlessness. They were so false, disloyal and dishonourable that they were no more to be trusted than common thieves. In the very next year, Prince Henry rebelled again and was again forgiven. In eight years more, Prince Richard rebelled against his elder brother and Prince Geoffrey famously said that his brothers could never agree well together unless they were united against their father. In the very next year after the reconciliation by the king, Prince Henry again rebelled against his father and again submitted, swearing to be true, and was again forgiven, and again rebelled with Geoffrey. But the end of this perfidious prince was come. He fell sick at a French town, and his conscience terribly reproaching him with his baseness, he sent messengers to the king his father, imploring him to come and see him, and to forgive him for the last time on his bed of death. The generous king, who had a royal and forgiving mind towards his children always, would have gone, but this prince had been so unnatural that the noblemen about the king suspected treachery and represented to him that he could not safely trust his life with such a traitor, though his own eldest son. Therefore, the king sent him a ring from off his finger as a token of forgiveness, and when the prince had kissed it, with much grief and many tears, and had confessed to those around him how bad and wicked and undutiful a son he had been, he said to the attendant priest, Oh, tie a rope about my body, and draw me out of bed, and lay me down upon a bed of ashes, that I may die with prayers to God in a repentant manner. And so he died, at twenty-seven years old. Three years afterwards, Prince Geoffrey, being unhorsed at a tournament, had his brains trampled out by a crowd of horses passing over him. So there only remained Prince Richard and Prince John, who had grown to be a young man now and had solemnly sworn to be faithful to his father. Richard soon rebelled again, encouraged by his friend the French king, Philip II, son of Louis, who was now dead, and soon submitted and was again forgiven, swearing on the New Testament never to rebel again, and another year or so rebelled again, and, in the presence of his father, knelt down on his knee before the king of France, and did the French king homage and declared that with his aid 
he would possess himself by force all his father's French dominions. And yet this Richard called himself a soldier of our Saviour. And yet this Richard wore the cross, of which the kings of France and England had both taken in the previous year at a brotherly meeting underneath the old widespreading elm tree on the plain, when they had sworn, like him, to devote themselves to a new crusade for the love and honour of the truth. Sick at heart, wearied out by the falsehood of his sons, and almost ready to lie down and die, the unhappy king had so long stood firm, began to fail. But the Pope, to his honour, supported him and obliged the French king and Richard, though successful in fight, to treat for peace. Richard wanted to be crowned King of England and pretended that he wanted to be married, which he really did not, to the French king's sister, his promised wife, whom King Henry detained in England. King Henry wanted, on the other hand, that the French king's sister should be married to his favourite son, John, the only one of his sons, he said, who had never rebelled against him. At last, King Henry, deserted by his nobles one by one, distressed, exhausted, broken-hearted, consented to establish peace. One final heavy sorrow was reserved for him even yet. When they brought him the proposed treaty of peace in writing, as he lay very ill in bed, they brought him also the list of the deserters from their legions, whom he was required to pardon. The first name upon this list was John, his favourite son, in whom he had trusted to the last. O oh, John, child of my heart, exclaimed the king, in a great agony of mind. O oh, John, whom I have loved the best, O oh, John, for whom I have contended through these many troubles, have you betrayed me too? And then he lay down with a heavy groan and said, now let the world go as it will, I care for nothing more. After a time, he told his attendants to take him to the French town of Chenon, a town he had been fond of during many years. But he was fond of no place now. It was too true that he could care for nothing more upon this earth. He wildly cursed the hour when he was born, and cursed the children whom he had left behind him, and expired. As, one hundred years before, the servile followers of the court had abandoned the conqueror in the hour of his death, so they now abandoned his descendants. The very body was stripped in the plunder of the royal chamber, and it was not easy to find the means of carrying it for burial to the abbey church of Fontevraud. Richard was said, in after years, by way of flattery, to have the heart of a lion. It would have been far better, I think, to have had the heart of a man. <laughs>
His heart, whatever it was, had caused to beat remorsefully within his breast when he came, as he did, into the solemn abbey and looked on his dead father's uncovered face. His heart, whatever it was, had been a black and perjured heart in all its dealings with the deceased king, and more deficient in a single touch of tenderness than any wild beast in the forest. There is a pretty story told of his reign, called the story of Fair Rosamund. It relates how the king doted on Fair Rosamund, who was the loveliest girl in all the world, and how he had a beautiful bower built for her in a park at Woodstock, and how it was erected in a labyrinth and could only be found by a clue of silk. How the bad Queen Eleanor, becoming jealous of Fair Rosamund, found out the secret of the clue and one day appeared before her with a dagger and a cup of poison and left her to the choice between those deaths. How fair Rosamund, after shedding many piteous tears and offering many useless prayers to the cruel queen, took the poison and fell dead in the midst of the beautiful bower, while the unconscious birds sang gaily all around her. Now, there was a fair Rosamund, and she was, I dare say, the loveliest girl in all the world, and the king was certainly very fond of her, and the bad Queen Eleanor was certainly made jealous. But I am afraid, I say, afraid, because I like the story so much, that there was no bower, no labyrinth, no silken clue, no dagger, no poison. I am afraid Fair Rosamund retired to a nunnery near Oxford and died there peaceably, her sister nuns hanging a silken drapery over her tomb and often dressing it with flowers in remembrance of the youth and beauty that had enchanted the king when he too was young and when his life lay fair before him. It was dark and ended now faded and gone. Henry Plantagenet lay quiet in the abbey church of Fontevraud in the 57th year of his age, never to be completed after governing England well for nearly 35 years. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed it, please comment and please like it and subscribe. Please do let me know if there are certain tales from whichever part of the world you might be in that you would like me to read. Thank you.